Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, and we're recording today here in Amiskwichi, Wiskigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. Dave Cornway is the owner and operator of DaveBerta.ca, and really just one of the like encyclopedia of knowledge about Alberta politics. Uh, he also is a podcaster as well. Blessed are the podcasters. And uh, Dave, Dave Cornway is our guest today here on the Progress Report. Dave, welcome. Thanks for having me, Duncan. It's a, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to having a good chat today. Yeah, there's lots to talk about. Uh, everything is, um, uh, I don't know, terrible is probably a good way to describe it. Um, and uh, there's, there's, I don't know, maybe there's, maybe there was a time when Alberta politics wasn't all fucked up, but um, it was before I was an adult, maybe just, just back, back when it was like just the PC hegemony, just, hegemony, just, just, just varying degrees of, of, uh, of chaos. And before that it was, it was just, uh, it was chaos, but with a lot more money. Well, I feel it must've been a, a pretty placid and gelid dominion when Peter Lougheed was, was winning like 95% of the seats, but I don't know, maybe that's just me. I wasn't around. I was, a, I was an infant or not even born in those days. Well, right? I, I think the placid uh, dominion was probably going back to the, the long reign of Ernest Manning um, before the big oil booms took off and uh, Alberta had more, you know, during the Lougheed era for most of the Lougheed era, we had more kind of more money than we knew what to do with, which is, which is why we ended up with, uh, with things like the, uh, the heritage savings trust fund, which is now uh, kind of part of our, political culture and um, almost part of our identity as Albertans. Yeah, that's fair, though it is uh, rapidly dwindling. But but we're not here to talk about the Heritage Trust Fund today. We are here to talk about, well, a, a few things. One of which, and I think the thing we have to address off the top, is the COVID-19 pandemic and just how bad it is getting. Uh, you know, we, you have doctors calling for, you know, a two-week circuit breaker lockdown. You have health uh, officials and, you know, doctors and nurses and various people who work in hospitals warning, um, you know, about, you know, the, uh, the incoming collapse and overwhelming of our acute care and hospital facilities by COVID. And it is, it is a, it is a scary time. We're setting new records seemingly every other day for case counts. Like what's, what's your general vibe about, you know, COVID-19 in Alberta right now? Well, it, it, we're we're headed in in the wrong direction, and that is case, case counts going up. Uh, I saw a graph that that um, I mean, every news agency is coming, every news company is coming out with, with graphs showing the you know new cases and new hospitalizations, and it just seems to be shooting up. I mean, it's it's it feels like eight months ago we you know when when the or eight, eight or nine months ago when when the pandemic began, there was a real seriousness to it. I mean, obviously it's still serious now, but I think people were taking it a lot seriously and our political leaders were taking it a lot more serious. And we succeeded over the summer in terms of when they talked, remember there was a lot of talk in the spring about flattening the curve. And the whole idea was that, you know, we weren't going to extinguish this, this thing yet until a vaccine is developed um, or, you know, miraculously goes away, which was never going to happen. But the whole idea was to keep new, new cases, you know, keep the spread low so that we wouldn't face the same situation that they did in Italy eight months ago or New York City, where hospitals were being overwhelmed because there were so many new, new cases and so many people, um, you know, being seriously infected by this virus. And it seemed like we did, we did, you know, we had a first wave in the spring and then over the summer, you know, people were outside. We was, maybe it was a lot easier to social socially distance, physically distance from others. Um, we did really, we were doing, it seemed like we were doing really well. I mean, I think at one point over the summer, we were having single digit or, teen, or uh, numbers in the teens for for new cases each day, and and I mean we saw over this past weekend we had I think it was Saturday was nine hundred and nineteen new cases, which is 
the, just the wrong direction. Um, so, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of things going on here, but I mean, I think that, I think, you know, understandably people are starting to feel a little tired of the changes that we've had to make over the past few months. I get that. Um, you know, I feel, fr- I, I feel, I, I'm, I'm getting tired of, of, of not being able to see my friends and my family as much as I am, but it's so important that we listen to those types of guidelines. And I mean, especially if we have a provincial government that is only willing to, you know, strongly recommend that we take these mandatory or voluntary measures. Um, you know, it, it's, it's seriously important to people that, that people actually listen to them. Yes. And I think something that we have to talk about, uh, it's, we have to talk about it since it's part, it's in the script. So we have to talk about it <laughs> is the response, the government response to COVID-19 and specifically the response as led by Jason Kenney. And, and when, God was in create a character mode for Jason Kenny. Did he leave the slider for human empathy at zero? Well, I mean, Jason Kenny of, of, of this past week when uh, it certainly seems that he's, he's showing a lot less empathy, almost no empathy to, to what's, what's happening, at least publicly. Um, I mean, like I said before, you go back eight months ago and it seemed like they were taking it seriously. I wrote a piece last week saying that, uh, you know, reminding people that when COVID started, Jason Kenny was out there, Quoting Winston Churchill, quoting Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, saying that not, we had nothing to fear but fear itself, talking about how this was his, you know, his personal battle. This is our battle of Britain. Um, you know, there was very much a, he was very much trying to um, trying to project an image of himself as the commander in chief against the on, on, you know, during in the war on COVID. And over the summer, I mean, when as cases fell. Uh, they very much he very much shifted messages, and it was very much a focus from you know he he wasn't showing up at, at Dr. Dina Hinshaw's press conferences anymore, where he was kind of elbowing his way to the to the podium. Um, he wasn't you know they weren't having the big press conferences at at the Edmonton Airport in front of giant boxes of PPE that was being shipped across the country. Um, it was very much a shift to a pure, almost a, like a, it was very much a forget COVID. We want to focus on, no, the econ- we want to focus on t- the time to get the economy rolling again. Baby. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's like, I mean, the, 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 the key part of, I mean, the thing that's missing out of that is that until the pandemic is under control, until this, this virus is under control, until people have the confidence to go out and spend money in restaurants and spend and feel co- confident that they'll be safe in places, uh, you know, with other people spending money, you can't really expect that the economy is going to recover. Um, but this really goes back to the the, um, and we'll talk we'll talk about. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about this in the pod. But it goes back to the three main points that the UCP ran on in 2019: is jobs, the economy, and pipelines. And they really need to try to. They're like desperately trying to salvage this. I mean, jobs, it, jobs in the economy. I mean, because of COVID and because of the the collapse and the international price of oil. I mean, those seem to you know be crossed off the list really early, or you know weren't very optimistic very early in, in Jason Kenney's mandate or his, his time as premier. Uh, and it seemed for a while that pipelines was going to be the only one that they might be able to savage, salvage. But, uh, you know, now with, uh, with the news down in, in the States, that, that, might, that might not even be the case. But well, I mean, I, I understand we'll, we'll talk about that, the pipeline stuff a little bit later. But I mean, there, there, was, there was a real shift away from it. And, and, and now that we're in the midst of the second wave, I think people are asking like, well, why, you know, why, where where is our political leadership on this? People are confused. People want clear communication from government in terms of what to do. Yeah, and and when I joke about God leaving Jason Kenney's slider for human empathy at zero when he was creating him, like you know, I have I have the receipts. Like 
here are uh, a, here's some clips I've pulled together. Some of them are from question period. Others, others are from press conferences. Let's just have a listen to what Jason Kenney really thinks about COVID. For most Albertans, the risk of death from other pathogens, accidents, and traffic fatalities is actually higher than it is from COVID. There will be more infections, there will be more outbreaks, there will be clusters, there will be more hospitalizations, and sadly, there will be more COVID-related deaths. But as we learn more about this, Mr. Speaker, I challenge our, our, our public health experts and our officials to ensure that our policy response is predicated on protecting the most vulnerable in the most in the strongest and most discreet ways possible. Because we cannot continue uh, indefinitely to impair the social and economic, as well as the mental health and physiological health of the broader population for potentially a year uh, through measures for, that, for, for, a, uh, for a influenza that does not generally threaten life apart from the most elderly, the immunocompromised, and those with comorbidities. The average age of death from COVID in Alberta is 83. And I remind the House that the average life expectancy in the province is age 82. I mean, let's put this in perspective. While we have to take the COVID threat very seriously, uh, it is currently projected to be the 11th uh, most common cause of death in Alberta this year. Uh, to date, we've lost approximately 340 lives, sadly, to COVID-19. In a typical year, 16 to 17,000 people pass away in Alberta. And so currently, this represents a tiny proportion of uh, the deaths in our province. The reason you don't want to lock down again, is it a philosophical reason, or is it because it would not achieve the goal of bringing the cases down, or is it both? No, it would not achieve our goal because our goal is not to take COVID-19 to zero. So, yeah, the goal is not to get to zero. Did you did you hear that one, Dave? Yeah, I mean, obviously the 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 goal is to get is eventually to get to zero is terms of in terms of, of not letting the virus spread in terms of eliminating the virus. Um, but I mean, the whole idea of of flattening the curve is to you know, at least, at least, I mean, get to zero or, or but limit the amount of, of infections that are, that are, are, are being spread so that the, the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. I, I think that the, I, I found, what I found so bizarre about his, Kenny's press conference on Friday is that he spent the first 10 minutes basically talking about how serious COVID was. Um, and then as he played in the clip, then, then he basically spent the rest of the press conference kind of downplaying its, its seriousness, talking about, uh, you know, only 300, only there's only more than 300 deaths across the province rather, you know, comparing to all the number of total number of people who die each year. But it just, it just seemed like the complete, I mean, the, the mixed messaging, first of all, I think was, was, was very confusing, but then the total lack of empathy um, in terms of, uh, you know, these are real people. These are our, our fathers and, and mothers and, and sisters and brothers who've, you know, who've, uh, or grandparents who've passed away and who, you know, otherwise wouldn't have. And it just seemed that it was very unempathetic. And I, th I think that is a big problem for, for Jason Kenney. He just, he doesn't seem to show, I mean, they're sending out this mixed messaging on top of it, but then he just, just, just doesn't seem to show when he has the opportunity to show real empathy with, with Albertans that, you know, these are real people who've lost loved ones. And 
trying to downplay it like that. I mean, we shouldn't let COVID rule our lives and we shouldn't, uh, you know, we shouldn't let it destroy us. But, but obviously, I mean, you know, there, there are people who have had their lives devastated. And, and I, I think it's just, I mean, it does show an incredible lack of empathy that he can't, he can't seem to publicly recognize that. I mean, listening to the, that series of clips, like I can only come to the conclusion that Jason Kinney is is willing to sacrifice, you know, your grandma and your relatives, you, to uh, the economy, so that the line can go up, you know, so that we must all worship at the at the line on the graph that that shows that the economy is going up, and uh, it's quite frankly psychopathic. Like I I don't know any other way to describe the way he is handling this response, but people are dying and it's not just death too. Like uh, the effects of COVID-19, the organ damage, the brain damage, the, the, the like long quote unquote long COVID. There's just a lot we don't know about this new virus. And we could be dealing with a generation of people who are dealing with the after effects of this, regardless of whether they you know, whatever the final death count is, which again is enormous worldwide. Yeah. And, and, and the way that they're framing it in terms of, of, I mean, when, whenever they're criticized, whenever the, the United Conservative Party government in Alberta is criticized about how it's the approach it's taking to COVID, it's, it's their response is to always frame it as either, uh, you know, there, there are two, there are only two ways to, to respond to this. There are, there's what we're doing now, which is, you know, there are some restrictions, most of them voluntary, um, and we're asking them, you know, to to follow follow these voluntary measures, or there's a complete lockdown and everything shuts down. Now there are plenty of measures in between that can be taken between those two points. And I know that there, you know, there are people calling for a lockdown. There are group. There's a group of physicians uh, here in Edmonton who are who have written a letter uh, and are calling for a two week kind of two week. I think they called it circuit breaker um, in order to or circuit break in order to uh, to to stop the spread because we've reached a you know such a such a a, a large wave. In the, in the second wave, um, so you know, obviously there are people calling for that, but but there's a whole variety of things that that government can do and has the power to do uh, in order to to stop this, to, you know, to to slow down or stop the spread of the virus that doesn't necessarily need to be a complete lockdown. Um, you know, maybe I mean the, the the my fear is that the longer we wait and the and I think this is a fear that a lot of people feel and a lot of that the longer we wait and if if case if if new cases continue to rise we're basically going to be a position where government is forced to to lock down i mean i think as we're seeing in the province of manitoba right now where they've had a huge second wave i think i think it might even be even their first wave because i don't think manitoba had a had huge cases a huge amount of cases in the spring um and now the government there is forced to take very drastic measures because it, it got out of control so i mean this is this is very serious and there are you know some some very serious very smart um and, and knowledgeable public health professionals and, and doctors who are who are talk, po- talking publicly, um, but it just doesn't seem like the, the government is really willing to willing to heed their advice at this point. I mean, and and it, and it, and it seems like it's coming from a political angle rather than uh, you know a pure public health angle, which I think the government was doing, and I think we can give them a little bit of credit to say that that's what they were they were taking more of that approach in the spring when this first started. But but in the midst of all of this. Uh, Tyler Shandro and the UCP government has also like literally gone to war with the people who work and operate our healthcare system. You know, there's this lawsuit that's been launched by the doctors. They're laying off and privatizing 11,000 frontline healthcare workers. Um, you know, they just promised a 4% wage rollback for everyone who works for the government. This includes nurses, lab techs, uh, you know, all the civil servants that that went on that wildcat, you know, the other day, the, the orderlies, mm-hmm. the laundry workers, the food workers. Um, 
you know, this this is a government that seems unwilling to change course, unwilling to back down from its extremely aggressive agenda. Yeah, and I think I think it comes down to the point where they just can't pivot. Um, you know, they they are because of the global pandemic, they are six to eight months behind in terms of of implementing their political agenda, the one they were the one that they they meant to implement or they planned to implement when they were elected in April twenty nineteen. Um, you know, they had to delay they had to delay a lot, a lot of this stuff. So you know, some a lot of this the the changes to healthcare, the layoffs, the fight with the doctors, the you know the plans to lay off nurses. Um, you know, introducing, introducing, you know, large swaths of privatization. Uh, this is stuff that they, that they, that they had probably planned to do six months ago, but were delayed because of the pandemic. And, and the reason why, I mean, I think the reason why they're, they're, why it seems like they're pushing this through so, um, so hard now is because next, by next April, they, have re- they will have reached the halfway mark in, ter- in their term in government. They reached two years um, out of their four-year term, and you know, we all know that governments operate on, you know, pretty much the same. You know, it doesn't matter what 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 uh, what party's in power, but they all kind of operate on the same schedule. Whereas you try to get your, you know, most controversial policies and changes implemented in the first, you know, roughly the first two years, and then you spend the next two years kind of smoothing things over, and then you're in re-election mode within the, the year ahead of the next year before the next election. And the UCP is getting dangerously close to that red line where they are. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to be implementing these and pushing through these, you know, very dramatic um, and unpopular policies in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, and there is an election coming in, in two and a half years. And I mean, two and a half years is an eternity in politics, but two and a half years is not long from now. And, the, you know, when, when uh, you know, April 2023 rolls around, uh, you know, if, 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 the, if the memory of Tyler Shandro and Jason Kenney laying off thousands, you know, tens of thousands of healthcare workers in the middle of a global pandemic is still fresh in Albertans' minds. Uh, you know, I have, I don't have any doubt that that would that's going to hurt them, hurt them in the polls. So that, I think that's part of why they're rushing this now. And and I mean, one of the encouraging things that that really uh, actually lifted my spirits was to see those workers go out on Wildcat, right, and to see those workers take their future into their own hands and. And use, you know, ultimately one of the biggest weapons that working people have in their, uh, you know, in their backpack, which is withdrawing their labor. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to see, you know, if there's more labor action, you know, in our in and around our hospitals, you know, especially it's it's truly fucked up because our hospitals are like literally on the cusp of being overwhelmed. There is not a lot of slack in the healthcare system. We've spent the past 30 years, 40 years making our hospitals efficient. You know what I mean? And when you make them efficient, that means there isn't a lot of slack in the system to deal with things like a massive global pandemic, which involves, you know, having workers either get sick on the job or if they get exposed to someone who's sick on the job, they have to isolate for 10 to 14 days. Like it, it is, um, they have a lot of leverage if they choose to use it. And I know, I think people got scared uh, at the, you know, the threat of retaliation. But I think when you look at the traumatic, like literally the, like the stress that they're going to be facing just over the next two to four, two to like two weeks to four months as this thing buckles our healthcare system. And then, and then at the end of the day, Tyler Shandra, their boss has promised to lay them off and if they're lucky, they might get hired back at, you know, half wage with no benefits, no, no union, no pension, mm-hmm. you know? 
Yeah, I, I think it's really. I mean, the, the you know the wildcat the wildcat strike was huge, uh, and I think it's important not to downplay it. I mean, we live in this media cycle where it's like you know there's a one day news story, and then the next day we move on to the next thing. You know, next crazy thing Donald Trump says, and you know, hopefully we won't be doing that for, for much longer. Uh, but uh, but um, uh, you know, and, and yesterday's news seems like it happened weeks ago. But I think it's really important not to downplay how what a significant moment that was when those those workers walked off the job and went to hell the wildcat strike i mean that is one of i mean it, it just shows how absolutely serious those people are i mean that no one i mean no 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 worker wants to go wants to be in a position where they have to go on strike people want to go go work their job uh you know get some get some fulfillment from their job um, you know, make money, make, you know, make, make money and have job security. And so they can go and spend time with their families and do things with their families and make a home. Um, but to be in a position where you are forced to, uh, you know, where you feel like you're forced, you're forced to, and you feel like you're forced to walk off the job and, and take a wildcat strike. That's, that's huge. I mean, that, I think that just shows how, how serious those workers were. And I think that it was really disappointing to listen to the response of the provincial government um, I mean, Tyler Shandro, the health minister, has constantly demeaned and downplayed uh, the role that these that these workers are have in the healthcare system. The people who clean the hospitals, the people who clean the laundry, um, you know, which who are you know who are critical parts of the healthcare system in a normal year, but during a global pandemic, uh, you know, you better hope that the people who are you know, who are sanitizing and cleaning the hospitals and your long-term care centers and your health centers, you know, are, are well-trained and they know what they're doing and they're committed to their job because this is something that's serious. There's a global pandemic. There's a virus that's spread, spreading. Uh, and, and the hospitals are the places, you know, are, are, are one of the serious places that we need to, we need to make sure are, are, are well-maintained. So, you know, and, the, and these are the people on the front lines of, of, uh, of, of doing that um, so that they would go on strike, um, you know, just shows how serious the situation is. And how serious they're taking it. But you're right. I mean, you know, they're, what they're essentially doing is they're, they're, these people are going to be laid off. Their jobs are going to be contracted out to private companies who are going to make a profit off of it. And they're going to offer these people, you know, at least if, you know, for a time, if they're not, you know, if, if, they're, if they're not unionized, um, you know, they'll like very likely have lower wages. They very likely will have, will have lower, you know, less benefits. And, and you know, I, I doubt they would have a pension. Um, so you're basically asking people saying, you know, you're not worth what we're paying you now, and I think that's uh, you know these are not the highest paid people in the healthcare system for the most part. These are you know they're not making you know big big doctor money. These are no, these people know, are making you know thirty five, forty, maybe fifty, fifty five at the outmost. Yeah, you know absolutely. if they've been there for twenty years, it's uh, and these people are the fucking troops, right? Again, you said it. If if they are not cleaning <laughs> the hospitals, if they are not uh, doing the laundry and cleaning the sheets and the uh, the um, the scrubs that everyone is wearing, um, everyone just keeps getting sicker and. And again, it, it, and you want someone, some scab who's getting paid half half of the yeah. salary of someone else who doesn't give a shit to show up and do that. Like it, yeah. it, it, it boggles the mind yeah. how badly the UCP and Tyler Shandro have fucked up this pandemic, and um, and people are noticing. But they, they, these people need to do, need to do that need to be able to do their jobs so that nurses and doctors can take care of the people who are ill. Like that's that's really what it is because otherwise the responsibility falls. You know, it's not like this work just doesn't get done. It gets it falls on other people to do it. Definitely, but I think I think we've exhausted all of the things we wanted to say about COVID. There's there's another huge huge story that has come out that I feel has not necessarily gotten the attention it deserves. Maybe because Donald Trump 
the American election finally happened. Donald Trump is probably out. Uh, you know, there's there's always COVID, this COVID disaster that's unfolding. But the Auditor General's report, uh, I mean, who among us hasn't had a $1.7 billion whoopsie, you know, on your first year on the job? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. No, this this is something that that should have gotten a lot more attention. And I think we'll get more, I mean, it seemed like it was like a one or two day blip. Um, the legislature currently isn't sitting this week. So I expect when MLA's return next week, I think the NDP will probably talk a lot about this because this seems to be, for the most part, um, the first Auditor General's report that is almost entirely focused on the UCP government. Whereas like the, the Auditor General's report that came out last year was there was stuff that kind of overlapped with the old NDP government. So the NDP weren't really as eager to to talk about that because it did talk about some, some of their failings um, as, as government. But but this is this is some, you know, there were some clear uh, clear mistakes, clear scandals, I would say, uh, that the opposition or that, that can be pinned on the United Conservative Party. So I think I think next week we'll hear, we'll start to hear a lot more about this. But it it it. Uh, I mean, the, the timing of it when it was released, I think it was basically released the day before the U.S. election. So you know there was a uh, you know there was a bit of attention to it, and then it was almost entirely uh, uh, you know talking about down in the states. So there's a bunch here. So where do you want to start? Pick pick the pick the scandal. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, there's, there's everybody's favorite uh, punching bag, the, uh, uh, you know, punching bag that, that, uh, that pours out with scandal, uh, the war room. <laughs> war room, war room, baby. Yes. I mean, it's not the biggest dollar figure, but it is, uh, everyone loves reading fucked up war room stories. It, it, so it's the most true to character of the, uh, of the Canadian Energy Center. Just, yeah, bumbling, incompetent grift. Um, okay, yeah. So the, the Auditor General found improper hiring practices, um, you know, freely awarded sole source contracts without documentation, spent money without board approval, and paid contractors before their contractors contracts were signed. Uh, that's what the auditors found. Um, again, I think at to the total dollar figure here was like one or two million dollars mm-hmm. of, of was spent kind of improperly. Um, but still, the hilarity continues. And I, I and I think it really, it, it, I mean, it does. Uh, and I think it really highlights the lack of, I mean, the lack of proper oversight which is what the auditor general highlighted but also the lack of transparency of this of this uh basically publicly funded uh um public relations a government funded public relations agency um you know we've known they're an independent startup dave oh yes yeah that well that's it yeah that was the tweet in response to uh uh to to the the auditor general's report i mean what what independent startup hasn't received you know a 30 million dollar startup funding from the government of alberta uh, oh, but know, for the for the next four years, for, the, yeah, for the next four years, yeah. No, this is. I mean, the Canadian Energy Center is a, it, it is a public relations subsidy for the oil and gas industry. That I, I think the oil and gas industry is is less and less uh, eager about um, because of these scandals that continue to keep creep, creeping up. Um, we we learned when it was set up last year that it, that it is um, it is exempt from FOIP. So there's no way for journalists or you know different organizations to actually look in and hold their hold the Canadian Energy Center accountable. We know who that it was you know it's being run by essentially political appointees. Uh, Tom Wilson, who's a you know longtime conservative and a uh, 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 former United Conservative Party candidate, former VP of the Progressive Conservative Party. Um, um, Mike Milkey, who that's Tom X, former press secretary, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and he was a civil servant worked at the PAB for a while. Uh, you know, Fraser Institute alumni and the author of the UCP's election platform. I mean, this well, Mark, yeah, Mark Milk is just like a Fraser Institute ghoul. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah so, <laughs> well, um, 
I mean, this is not a, it, it is, it is a partisan, this is basically a partisan political organization that, that is, uh, that, that's, that, you know, that's operating as a subsidy for the oil and gas industry. And it's, uh, it, you know, it continue, can, it continues to bumble along and there doesn't seem to be any, any transparency in it. Uh, uh, it, you know, th- this is a, this is a government that, I mean, I've said this before, they're, they, you know, their key care, one of their key characteristics is they never admit they're wrong and they never apologize for anything. And I, I mean, I wonder how long the Canadian Energy Centre can bumble along uh, before it finally, you know, has outlived its, its usefulness or outlived, you know, or been, been too embarrassing for, for this government. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some speculation that, you know, it's going to be gone before Christmas. And I just, you know, never no. no. we will have we will have the worm around as long as Jason Kenney is in power. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's but, a campaign promise, promise made, promise kept. You yeah. Know? What's but, the problem here? But, but I mean, going, not to not to go back to talk to, to talk too much, too much about COVID again. But when we hear this, the you know, these issues about you know, lack of proper oversight and the amount of money that the, that the, that the war room is spending. And yet at the same time, we have the government saying, oh, well, you know, we can't afford to hire new teachers to, to you know, to make sure classroom sizes are smaller. You know, we, they're, they're laying off, uh, you know, they're laying off health support workers, they're laying off nurses, they're getting into this big fight with doctors. Um, so there's no money for that, but there's money for the Canadian Energy Centre. And I mean, that show, just shows a real kind of mixed really really mixed up priorities for this government and i mean i think it goes back to when i said they 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 can't pivot is you know any any government with with a sense um would realize that maybe this isn't a priority anymore and maybe we should focus on on the pandemic and maybe fighting imaginary enemies like you are with the war room and the 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 um public, yeah, public I think inquiry yeah, I got We got to talk about the inquiry just for a second because sure. I, I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break some news on the podcast here. Oh, so okay. I, I have heard of a couple more environmental NGOs have received communications from the inquiry, uh, the Wilderness Committee, and a, an organization called WildSite. I'm not very familiar with these organizations. They have received correspondence from the inquiry. Again, it's in this uh, asking them to participate mode, uh, essentially because they have no power in BC. It's a uh, the Public Inquiries Act in Alberta, weirdly enough, doesn't extend to BC organizations. <laughs> so they have to, they've constructed this elaborate, will you please participate uh, kind of rigmarole. And and it should be pointed out that it took them um, more than a year to actually figure out how to send letters to organizations that they wanted to talk to. <laughs> but there you go. There's your breaking news. Yikes. Mm-hmm. And so the public inquiry bumbles on. It's missed its deadline twice now. Uh, Steve Allen has been embroiled in multiple controversies. He gave the $905,000 sole source contract to Denton's, the uh, firm where his son is a partner. He openly campaigned and donated for Jug Switcher, the man who appointed him to the position. Uh, you know, I pick pick your other one. Pick pick a, pick a scandal from the inquiry. There's been, again, a half dozen other ones. Yeah. It is... Uh, just an utter failure in in every respect. Well, it's it's a public inquiry that's that's taken place completely in secret. Mm-hmm. There's there's notably no, there's, private public inquiry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and there's no there's no uh, we you know and again it's it's exempt from FOIP, so we don't really, we don't really know what what what's going on. There's no real real accountability, uh, and yeah. as you said, the the deadlines just keep on getting pushed back and back. So you know, this seems like something that they cannot just get rid of as easily as they could the, uh, the Canadian energy center, but it, it has become a little comical in terms of how, uh, how frequently uh, they've been pushing back the deadline as if this thing will ever, will ever get done. 
Because you spoke about exempt from FOIP. I mean, I FOIPed the interim report, which was, I think, done in January. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even get a redacted page. I was just straight up, I denied. I was just given a denial. I couldn't even see the page numbers or the email addresses of who received it. What I did learn, though, was that the interim report was all of 11 pages. So um, so there's that. That's how it's going. Okay. <laughs> All right, all right. Enough on the inquiry. As much as uh, as hilarious it is to talk about it, the AG report did turn up massive, massive fuck ups. And the one that again, I don't think anyone has really uh, got into. We we kind of did a, a little Twitter thread about it on on Progress Alberta account. But the crude by rail has is this massive, massive dollar figure, this massive adjustment. And as well, we just learned that the government of Alberta just straight up lied to us uh, back in February. Kenny triumphantly announced that we were out of the crude by rail business. You know, that the, the literal quote in the thing is we have divested all of the crude by rail contracts. The auditor general was like, uh, no, you didn't actually. Uh, <laughs> and there's still, as the time of the writing of the auditor general's report, 11 crude by rail contracts that are still active. Mm-hmm. And that uh, lie ended up uh, because they they wanted to pretend that they had cleared it all, but they they hadn't, and so that lie essentially means that six hundred thirty seven dollars is now back on the books. Mi- million, 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 yes, is back on the books when it comes to these crude by rail contracts, and we just have no insight into what these contracts are doing. Are they still active? How much are they costing us? Is there just a huge rail yard full of government of Alberta leased, you know, ra- crude rail cars just sitting there somewhere? Uh, we don't know. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think we should probably know that. I think the government should probably uh, tell us what the fuck is going on. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be. The, I think. The, the, I don't think this is going to be the end of that story. Uh, I mean, I remember back months ago when, or I mean, maybe even a year ago now, when when uh, when Premier Kennedy announced they'd canceled the contracts. I mean, he basically, it you know, he basically stood on the roof of the legislature dome and and uh, you know with a sign and yelled you know yelled out to the world that the contracts had been had been canceled. I mean, this was a big. This is a big UCP point in the 2019 election when they were going after the NDP, uh, who, orig- who originally signed these contracts. Um, but uh, it, so, so I, I mean, I was, I was, sh- I was very surprised to read this because it seemed like the government had been so confident in terms of talking about how, and bragging about how these contracts had been cancelled um, that there are still some on the books as of the, you know, as of the publishing of this uh, this report. Is uh, you know, it makes you wonder. Well, you know what you know, what, what, what else, what else are they hiding? If this is what they've, you know, this is what they said they did. And, and the auditor general is clearly pointing out, well, this is, they actually didn't do that. Um, you know, what, what else are we, you know, how, how far, how far does this go? What else are we missing? Well, the losses still haven't been fully realized, mm-hmm. right? If there are still existing and 11 existing contracts out there and, and those haven't been sold off yet, then I don't think the price for those is getting any better. And especially when, as the government for the past 18 months, you've been telling everyone who will listen that you hate these things and that you're willing to sell them no matter the cost, no matter what, you're going to get a shitty fucking price for them. You've abandoned all your leverage. Mm-hmm. And so this this massive financial loss is totally and wholly on the UCP government simply for ideological reasons. They just didn't like that government had gotten into the business of moving oil around with rail cars Mm -hmm. and because they didn't like it uh we all get to eat shit and that sucks well and i'm interested i'm interested to see how the ndp responds um when the legislature comes back because this was one of their big things that they that uh rachel notley did when she was premier and 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 you know they this was kind of her taking command of the of the uh the low oil price issue and, and the pipeline issue um 
so I'm very interested to see how how they hand how they handle this, whether they you know whether they want to focus on this or not. I mean, obviously, because there's because there's a lot to a lot to focus on, but this one in particular um, must just really sting because it was something that the UCP really hit the NDP hard in um, when they were in government and and in the last election and really bragged about a lot when they when they when they they uh, they announced they had uh, had cancelled it last year. Yeah, conservatives get a lot of credit for being financial or business managers, but really they're just as fucking incompetent as everyone else. And and it, it really is annoying how much kind of uh, you know credit they get. You know what I mean? Well, it is. I mean, this is the kind of. I mean, you have many many people talk about it in in, the, in this way, but I mean, I've heard Preston Manning of all people talk about it. Um, you know, comparing sword and shield issues, and it's kind of just like a. A very easy, very simplistic, easy way to break down issues. What issues are you strong and and you can you know you can hit your opponent with with their with your sword? And what issues do you need a you know do you need a, a shield with to defend on because they're your weaker issues? And and you know for for a lot of reasons, and this isn't you know this isn't by merit or isn't isn't really true. Conservatives do get a free pass on issues like fiscal responsibility because they are perceived as being more responsible with money. I mean, we know that's not true. Um, you know, they, 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 you know, this Auditor General's report basically, basically confirmed is the latest thing to confirm that is, is you know, I, I don't think there's much, much difference between governments in terms of, of actually being fiscally responsible. Oh, it's hilarious, right? Like deficits, deficits really matter when conservatives aren't in power. And when conservatives are in power, you'll notice we don't give a fucking, give, give, a, give any dams about yeah. the deficit. Yeah. Um, but I, but I speaking to that issue, I mean, the whole issue, man, and financial incompetence, uh, that also applies to the uh, refinery, which again, took another huge ding from the Auditor General. And I think, I think there was an adjustment of $735 million by the Auditor General and just, just they had improperly calculated, um, you know, their losses, I think. And uh, here we are, this, this boondoggle that uh, just has not gone away over the past what, 15 dozen years since Stalmac kind of got this ball off the ground. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the, uh, the, Fiscal, the government's fiscal update last last August noted that the the Alberta Petroleum Marketing Commission lost 2.5 billion um, um, just last just over last year over over the Sturgeon refinery. So this is like uh, this is such like an an ongoing thing because as you said, this goes back to I mean it goes all the way back to the to the Stelmac era when the Progressive Conservatives were in, were in government. So this is this is a the kind of this is this kind of I mean, I hate to use the word boondoggle, but it kind of feels it kind of feels like it that kind of stretches over, you know, many different parties five and, premiers, and about, you know, right? five or six different. Stelmac, Redford, Hancock, yeah, Notley, Kenny. Prentice, oh, sorry, Prentice. Six, Prentice. yeah. Prentice, Notley. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously not all of them were responsible for this, but, you know, and, you know they, they all inherited this problem and, and uh, didn't necessarily do anything, do anything to make it better. So I don't, I, I don't know if anybody owns, I think they all kind of own this issue in terms of the refinery. It's, uh, it's just been this, this kind of massive black hole where uh, cash where just, goes, disappears just disappears into the Northwest refinery. Which, 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 <laughs> which, 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 yeah, which is, which is unfortunate because, uh, you know, it's too bad because, you know, the idea of, of, you know, doing more refining here, if we are going to produce more oil, is probably, you know, 
is better than shipping it down to Texas or shipping it shipping it to China. Well, if it was if it was a elsewhere. if the people um, owned the asset and were gaining the benefit, but like the the argument made that like for sure uh, like because it was this public private partnership, it was just a boondoggle. I mean, it was just a bad idea from the start. Like unless I'm all for you know public uh, corporations, if the government wants to get into business for the benefit mm-hmm. of the people, yes, I have full support. But like this wasn't originally set up like that. And uh, but but the 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 bad part is is that we are get, taking all the losses. We gain very little of the benefit and all of the downside. So it's just, it's really the like worst of everything. Yeah. Well, that's, that really, uh, really, uh, really sums up uh, uh, public private partnerships. Right and there. finally, <laughs> in the Auditor General's report, uh, probably the most pointless and cruel thing that I think the UCP have ever done, and that is shifting the date that people get their ACE checks from the end of the month to the first of the month in order to to play an accounting shell game to make their their dollar figures seem lower at the end of the year, the auditor general looked at that and said uh, no, and and the hundred million dollars that they saved quote unquote saved by doing this was just put back on the books by the auditor general. What was your take on this, Dave? Uh, it is, I mean, it's it's shameful. Um, you know, these are the people who are depending on assured income for this really handicapped, the benefit, the, the financial benefit of that is, you know, these are some of the most vulnerable people in our society right now. And they, you know, and it's not like Aish is, you know, it's not like this is a gold plated benefit. Oh, it's below plan. the poverty line, what um, they're getting. You know, these are people who absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I do not, it seems every government who, Every big, every government comes to power and looks at Aish and they see, I mean, cause it, it is, you know, it is a huge, it is a big, quite a big program. Um, but there's a reason why it's quite a big program because it is so important because so many people depend on it. Uh, and you know, I, they just, they tinker with it and they, they pull off stuff like this. And I think it's just, uh, it's yeah. It, I, I don't understand why government would, would, would tinker with this would, you know, it, it would do things to make it worse, to make it worse in order to just shift around the money for, for, just for some, so some cabinet minister could you know, show I mean, up I, to I mean, a treasury board meeting and say, look what I did. I saved us a hundred million dollars. Well, no, you fucking didn't. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think that demonstrates the kind of pressure that cabinet ministers are under from the premier's office and from the minister of finance to, to, cut spending and cut funding of the, of these types of programs. Um, I mean, if, if this is what's happening in, in Aish, if this is what's happening in community supports. I mean, we could, I mean, we could spend, you know, a dozen, dozen podcasts talking about other things that are happening in other ministries as well. This is just like a snapshot of, of what's happening. This one is just especially fucking cruel because these people are facing, you know, NSF charges. They're, they're facing, um, you know, the, the inability to buy food and things that they need. Like if you're buying a bus pass at the end of the month, you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the simple, as, as simple as, as not being able to buy a bus pass at the end of the month, having to wait to the beginning, beginning of the month when you're after your bus pass has expired. Um, it is. Cruel. All right. And in yeah. this same vein, um, you know, we released uh, a bit of original uh, investigative journalism that actually came out like the same day this Auditor General's report got a bit swamped. But I think it's worth uh, uh, bringing up here just because I think it's an important story and one that's going to continue over the, the rest of the UCP term. And that is, um, you know, the fact that conservative connected law firms are doing quite well under the UCP. And you know, our analysis shows that, uh, you know, three conservative law firms that we put a spotlight on, Newman, Thompson, McLennan, Ross, and Dentons, so uh, are all doing gangbusters under this UCP government. 
And, you know, when I say friends and enemies off the top, it, it, it is because uh, and my enemies do listen to this podcast. Uh, and I know this because uh, Blaze Beamer, uh, Kenny's old unification press flack um, turned, I think he's a UCP press attorney now for the justice minister. When we were writing this story, we reached out to the justice ministry. We had questions. Um, you know, you can read the story for yourself. It'll be in the show notes. But like, for instance, you know, why did they choose McLennan Ross and specifically Stephen Delansky to be on the uh, the carbon tax case if Stephen Delansky has no constitutional law experience? Why did the government of Alberta pay $15,000 to the law firm McLennan Ross in trust for UCP MLA Devinder Tour? We have gotten, still have no idea why that happened. Uh, Blaze Beamer did not answer our questions, but he did quote some some quotes back to me from our podcast. So that's how I know he's a listener. So Blaze, if you're listening, uh, fuck you. <laughs> um, but yeah, very much in the same vein as the Auditor General, we've got this kind of like, you know, dollars flowing out the door to friends of the Conservative Party. What, what was your reaction when you read this story, Dave? Well, the, 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 there's always money for lawyers. That's... <laughs> You know, there may not be, be may not be money for other stuff, but there's there's always money for for lawyers, and this is a government that is, I mean, it seems to have no problem spending money on spending money on law firms. And as you said, I mean, these some of these law firms have some pretty pretty direct connections to people who are involved in the conservative movement, and and uh, and there's you know business 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 is good because this government is launching a lot of lawsuits and taking a lot of legal actions. I mean the the uh, the the lawsuit against the carbon tax, the federal carbon tax, is a big one. I think it's going to be going probably going to be going to the Supreme Court. Um, yeah, the carbon tax. You know, so, it's actually been yeah. argued at the Supreme Court, and and we're getting a decision in oh, the, in the okay. new year. Uh, notably, Stephen Delansky, the government, uh, the person who was hired by the government to be a part of that case, and and Jason Kenney's and the UCP's lawyer, uh, did not make any oral arguments to the Supreme Court in that case. That went to another lawyer from another firm. Okay, I didn't realize. And, uh, that. Okay. But yeah, the, I mean, the other big thing that we discovered in this report that you know Newman Thompson, a firm that specializes in aggressive, you know, employer side labor law and union avoidance, they saw a huge bump in billings from the government of Alberta and some massive sole source contracts. So they they averaged thirty three thousand thirty three thousand dollars a year under the final three years of the NDP, and in one year under the NDP, they made more than five hundred and twenty nine thousand dollars in government of Alberta billings, and notably. They picked up a seven hundred thousand dollar sole source contract to uh, to be the government of Alberta's counsel uh, on the Alberta Medical Association lawsuit against the government of Alberta. This is the the doctors of Alberta literally suing the government over um, chicanery involving negotiations around their pay. Yeah, these are well. As I said, it's 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 heady heady days to be able to be a conservative lawyer or a, or a uh, you know conservative law firm in this province because the the government see doesn't seem to have any uh, any uh, you know moral uh, or not necessarily moral but any any problem spending money on uh, yeah. And on, I mean, they're they're firms. not only are they they're just like contracting out to their friends, right? But I mean, there's this incredible quote from in the piece from um, University of Calgary law professor Nigel Banks. I'm just going to read it out here because I think it's just worth putting a spotlight on. And he has this great English accent. I'll never be able to do justice with it, but it was great interviewing him and getting his his uh, his take on this. But the, the quote is this, law firms have this great phrase, rainmaker. The idea is that they may not be much good at the practice of law, but they're incredibly well connected and they bring in business to the law firms. And then other people actually do the work. Uh, you'll love to see it. So finally... Dave, and I think this this is our, our final segment. Uh, I don't want to spend a t- bunch of time talking about the uh, U.S. election. You can go find other podcasts who are much more 
interesting and, and better informed on that than I am. But really, what what I want to talk about is Biden's election and what it means for Alberta, and specifically the issue that we all fucking hate to talk about, pipelines. Uh, you know, Jason Kenney was very clearly cheering for a different result here. He was very ch- clearly cheering for a Donald Trump win, uh, specifically because Joseph Biden had been very clear in the lead up to the election that he was going to cancel uh, Keystone XL. And uh, uh, Dave, uh, what, what do you think is going to happen in regards to the Keystone XL pipeline? Well, I mean, you know, as you said, I mean, Jason Kenney was cheer- cheering for Donald Trump in 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 the in you know he might, might not have been out there publicly campaigning for Trump, but I mean, he basically made the government his government made a you know a six point or seven point five billion dollar bet on Donald Trump being reelected uh, president of the United States in their investment in the their one point five billion investment in Keystone, and then their their promised uh, six billion dollars in loan guarantees for the the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, one of, I mean, one of the big promises that Joe Biden made, um, and one of, you know, probably, you know, the big, the big promises that that he made to, especially the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, was, uh, was a focus on climate change, and that included canceling the presidential permit that allowed the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. It was a permit that was denied by President Obama, and then signed by President Trump when he became uh, when he became president four years ago. Um, so I think it's going to be, you know, I mean, Biden, he didn't give the progressive wing of the Democratic Party a lot of the big things they wanted. He didn't accept Medicare for all. He didn't accept defund the police. Um, he almost, almost, you know, very carefully actively campaigned against defund the police. Uh, but one of the big things he did talk about and he did give to that, that brand, that branch of the Democratic coalition was uh, focus on climate change. That they're going to be the United States is going to, as he said, is going to re-enter the Paris uh, Climate Accord, uh, and canceling the the Keystone XL presidential permit. So, it, I think it's going to be there's going to be a lot of pressure on Biden to renege on this promise. But I think it's going to be very hard for him because I think that uh, I mean this election has shown, or the past year has shown that 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 progressive wing is becoming an increasingly uh, powerful voice within the Democratic Party now. Understandably, Joe Biden is a, you know, just understand Joe Biden is a centrist. I heard John Dickerson on uh, the Slate Political Gab Fest last week described, um, I think it was, it was John Dickerson or it might have been, might have been um, uh, Ezra Klein, uh, described Joe Biden as, uh, you know, he is always at the center of the Democratic Party. He is the, the he is the centrist of the Democratic Party. So you know wherever the Democratic Party moves on the you know on the political spectrum, he's usually in the middle of that. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there will be a lot of pressure on him. We've heard that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is making it a, a priority to convince uh, Pres- President-elect Biden not to remove the permit. Premier Kenny has talked a lot about it. I think there'll be a lot of pressure in the United States from, obviously, from TransCanada, TC Energy, and and, uh, and, the pipe, and the pipeline building companies along the line. There'll be pressure from some of the big private sector unions in the United States, um, plumbers and pipe fitters, laborers international, the Teamsters, the operating engineers, they all have contracts to work on this pipeline, to build this pipeline. Um, so there's, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him not to repeal the presidential permit, but you know, it's going to be a big one for him to, to back down. Let's from. just, I'm just going to put um, it out there. The, the Keystone Excel pipeline, there's a 90, probably 95% chance it's fucking toast. And it's toast for a few big reasons. One, Joe Biden can immediately kill it 
He does not need the Senate. He does not need yep. anyone else's say so. He as president when he is in president, uh, expected in the first hundred days, he will revoke the presidential permit because it is something he can do without anyone else's permission. Uh, to you, the point you make yep. about uh, the the progressive wing of the party, you know, he pretty much told the Bernie Sanders wing of the party to fuck off. Uh, and but the one promise he made was to the activist wing of the party was um, Keystone XL. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure from Bernie Sanders and uh, the squad and the associated folks of, with, you know, with those people uh, on Biden to do this in the first hundred days. And, um, you know, that that is a part of the Democratic coalition that has a lot of energy behind it. It has a lot of momentum behind it. It is going to be incredibly difficult for Joseph Robinette Biden to uh, to to not follow through on this. And. And finally, the, the the blue collar labor unions that support Keystone, the ones that you talked about, um, you know, at the leadership level, they're Democrats, but the rank and file, the, probably the majority of those folks are Republican Trump voters. Um, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that those particular unions in those particular locations are not uh, particularly powerful uh, within the Democratic Party right now. And so, you know, mm-hmm. when you look at that, when you look at those three things, you know, the powerful progressive wing of the party, the fact that Joe Biden can just do it and the fact that labor just doesn't have the juice it once did. Um, yeah, I think it's toast. And what that means for the billion and a half dollars of equity and the $6 billion in loan guarantees, like there is a very real possibility that our loan guarantees could be paying to rip that fucking pipeline out of the ground. <laughs> it's just, so TC Energy yeah, doesn't have yeah. to incur I mean, any losses. Yeah, from what I understand, so like some of the some of the loan guarantees have um, have been made, and then there are a whole bunch that, from what I understand, that that take effect on January first. Now, Joe Biden doesn't become president until January twentieth or January twenty first. So I don't know, you know, I mean, I I bet you there's a lot of people at the Alberta in the Alberta government trying to figure out, well, you know, you know, how do we uh, how do we minimize our you know minimize the damage this is going to make because that's that's a heck of a lot of money and it was a heck of a lot of money when when Jason Kenney announced last year that uh, that they were going to be putting you know seven point five billion into this pipeline it was, he did he made that commitment at the same time as he was talking about cutting healthcare cutting education um, and and in the world we exist in now um, you know where where you know the the the, the I want to say I don't want to say the post pandemic world but the but the world where we're living in in COVID um, it, it just does not seem like the right priority for, for government to be putting this. And I understand he wanted to, you know, he wanted to show confidence at the, at a time when the price of oil was, was collapsing and it was, it was symbolic and sending a message, but man, that's a heck of a lot of money. And, uh, and if the, if it, if the pipeline gets canceled, which I think it will, um, you know, that's a, you know, Jason Kenney can't blame Justin Trudeau for this. He can't blame, you know, he can blame Joe Biden, but okay, well, what good is that going to do? You know, he can't blame, uh, he can't, he can't blame the usual boogeyman. And, uh, and I think that he's going to, you know, the, the, you see this, this might be the big, you know, the big, fin- the first big financial scandal that sticks and actually, actually really damages the UCP for that 1.5 billion. Just, you know, yeah, you vaporize one and a half billion dollars. People tend to notice, um, especially, especially mm-hmm. on, that's, on a, that's a lot of money. When that's a lot of money. That one and a half billion dollars was contingent on Donald Trump getting reelected and everyone fucking knew it. Um, yeah, it is, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, the it's it's bad. It's bad, folks. <laughs> and uh, uh, the fact I mean, there's also I mean, this isn't even a debate around, the, you know, the pipeline, whether the pipeline should exist. But like Jason Kenney made a disastrous decision to throw 
our money at this project. And um, everyone knew it was a disaster from the beginning, and we're just going to be dealing with the fallout of it over the next, I would say, six months or so as as it comes into focus what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And from what I understand from the permit is is uh, is if, if it's revoked, um, uh, the 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 so TC TC Energy will be responsible for actually removing all the infrastructure. So any everything that's built down in the states basically has to will, will potentially have to be pulled out of the ground, which is, I mean, I, that's a huge expense. And then we've huge... got this pipeline on our side of the border that is, uh, you know, will be a literal pipeline to nowhere. Um, <laughs> and and it's worth pointing out, folks, that we we get into this uh, in our latest progress report newsletter. Uh, we. Um, we quote Johnson, a guy with Eurasia Group who appeared on the Arc Energy Ideas podcast. This is this like highly paid kind of consultant who is given incredible amounts of money by corporations to to tell them what the most likely things are that, that are going to happen in politics. And and he echoes all of the things that we're saying right here. So uh, if you're not a member of the, if you're not getting the Progress Report newsletter, you should get it. Uh, but uh, it is, uh, if you'll excuse the product placement, but um, but yeah, it's it's. It's uh, it's bad. We're a billion and a half dollars up in smoke, and uh, there's no other way to spin that really. And again, totally his decision. So, Dave, um, yeah, it's the end of the pod. Uh, what's the best way for people to follow you and your work? Well, you can you can uh, follow me on uh, online at uh, well at daveberta.ca is where the where daveberta the the blog the website is. Uh, you can follow. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, Day of the Day Berta podcast, which you can find everywhere that you download podcasts. You can find me on uh, Twitter at, at Dave Cornway or the podcast at, at Dave Berta. Yeah. Thank you. And, and DaveBerta.ca is the, the premier site for hot takes on the 1982 Alberta election. Oh my God. We didn't even get to talk about the 1982. Mon- so last Monday was the 38th anniversary of the 1982 Alberta general election. And I, I have so much to say about that. I'm going to write, I have a post that I'm, that I'm writing uh, because it, it all, and I'm not going to get too much into this. It coincided, the anniversary coincided with the, with the date that Rod, uh, MLA Rod Loyola introduced the uh, Canadian unity motion in the legislature, which has caused all sorts of chaos because Drew Barnes is off being Drew Barnes. And, uh, and yeah, so, you know, you can read all about it uh, in a, in a couple of days. <laughs> Original original content you will simply you will literally not get anywhere else but at Dave Brita. <laughs> for, for, for for better uh, or Dave, worse. <laughs> Dave, thanks uh, so much for coming on, uh, folks. If you like this podcast, you want to keep hearing it. There are a few very simple things you can do to help us out. One of those is to leave a review, uh, five stars only, of course. Um, but also beyond a review. Uh, tell your friends, you know, if uh, if you think me and Dave chatting for an hour about politics, if you learned a bit about this, if you think your friends and family could learn a bit about learning this conversation, please share it with them, text it to them, put it on their wall, send it to them over Messenger. Uh, word of mouth advertising goes a long, long way, and we don't spend money on real advertising. So so we're actually very dependent on it. Uh, and finally, if uh, if you really want to support us, the, the thing that helps us out the most and the thing that, you know, keeps me and Jim um, from being homeless is giving us a bit of money every month. And to do that, you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, uh, put in your credit card, contribute what you can, five, 10, $15 a month. We would really appreciate it. Uh, also, if you have any notes, thoughts, uh, comments, things you think I need to hear, I'm very easy to reach on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at uh, Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Uh, thanks so much to Cosmic Famu Communist for the amazing theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.